You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Thank you very much, Tim, for that kind introduction, and thanks to the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee and the caucus itself. I'd like to point out that it was uh, in October of 2001 that the uh, caucus held the only public debate on the the Patriot Act uh, before the Patriot Act actually passed some 24 days later. It was the only public debate in which an actual uh, official from the Justice Department was present. So uh, the caucus has a pretty good track record when it comes to holding important and relevant debates. Uh, Almost two years ago, former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden leaked a classified court order to a journalist at The Guardian that sparked a national debate over government surveillance. The court order revealed publicly the existence of a classified program by the NSA to collect the phone metadata of tens of millions of Americans. It was June 5th, 2013, a warm spring evening when The Guardian broke the story, because I remember it very well. And when I read the court order on The Guardian website, I realized this program, this massive collection, was the result of what Senator Wyden had been referring to all these years when he said there was a secret interpretation of the Patriot Act and that Americans would be stunned and angry when they found out. The secret interpretation we eventually learned related to Section 215 of the Patriot Act. That statute allows the government to obtain any tangible things, books, records, documents, as long as the things sought are relevant to an authorized terrorism investigation. And what the government eventually disclosed was that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which meets in secret to hear government applications for wiretaps and other court orders under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, had interpreted the word relevant to essentially mean all records held by the phone company, all metadata records. The government was authorized to collect, in other words, all call detail records for every customer of that phone company that received the order. Now, to be sure, the records were the times, the dates, and the lengths of the phone calls, not the content. Nonetheless, the public was shocked and outraged at a level that hadn't been seen since the revelation of the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping in 2005. And the Section 215 leak was followed by a rapid series fire of, of, of other Snowden leaks about the PRISM program to obtain emails and other content from Internet companies, about the NSA tapping the cell phone of German Chancellor Angela Merkel, about the NSA and its British counterpart tapping into the uh, data links connecting Yahoo and Google data centers overseas. These revelations created a huge backlash not only here, but in Europe and elsewhere. About seven months into the by now international debate, President Obama gave a major speech on surveillance reform. While he said he had seen no intentional abuse of the NSA program to prevent the potential for abuse, he said the NSA should end its bulk collection. But he said he wanted to preserve the NSA's ability to obtain the records it needs to spot clues to terrorist plots. And he essentially left it up to Congress to figure out the way. So here we are 16 months after Obama laid out his goal and Congress has not acted. But nothing moves people like a deadline. And Section 215 is about to expire in a few short weeks, June 1st. 
And in fact, because of the upcoming Memorial Day recess, the effective deadline is May 21st. That's not much time. On Tuesday this week, Judiciary Committee leaders in the House and Senate introduced the USA Freedom Act, which would end bulk collection not only of phone records, but of all other records under Section 215 and under two other national security authorities. It would also require FISA court transparency and significant rulings and would grant companies more leeway to report on national security orders they receive. Yesterday, the House Judiciary Committee marked up the bill and passed it out by an overwhelming bipartisan majority of 25 to 2. The House is in recess next week, but the bill could come to the floor the following week. And in the Senate, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has introduced a bill to simply reauthorize Section 215 for another five and a half years. Though a clean reauthorization is a long shot, it's an opening bid that gives advocates of preserving the NSA program a bill to get behind with the hopes of perhaps modifying USA freedom more to their liking. Then there are groups that support allowing Section 215 to sunset. We have panelists here today who will debate the pros and cons of these approaches. So let me briefly introduce now each of our speakers. On my far left is Chris Calabrese, Senior Policy Director at the Center for Democracy and Technology. He's a longtime advocate for privacy protections, internet openness, and limits on government surveillance. Before joining CDT, Chris served as a legislative counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office. Next to Chris is Jessica Herrera-Flanagan, a lobbyist with Monument Policy Group, where she focuses on issues at the intersection of technology and security. She currently manages Reform Government Surveillance, a coalition made up of 10 mostly major Internet companies that came together post-Snowden to advocate for government surveillance reform. Then we have Nima Singh Guliani, a legislative counsel with the ACLU Washington office, focusing on NSA surveillance and privacy issues. She's a former colleague of Chris's. And prior to joining the ACLU, she worked in the chief of staff's office at DHS, concentrating on national security and civil rights issues. To my immediate left is Robert Litt, the general counsel of the office of the director of national intelligence. Prior to becoming general counsel in 2009, he was a partner at Arnold and Porter, he has also been a deputy assistant AG in the criminal division during the Clinton administration and is steeped in the theory and practice of surveillance law. I'd like to open our discussion now by asking each of our speakers a question that gets at the topic of our panel. Sunsetting Section 215, should Congress reauthorize, reform, or retire? Um, and I'll, I think I'll start with you, Chris. If you could each limit your answers to about three minutes, that would be great. So, Chris, CDT supports USA Freedom. Why, in your opinion, is this a good alternative when it doesn't address major concerns and other surveillance programs, including Section 702 of the uh, FISA Amendments Act that collects emails and phone content, or even bulk collection through law enforcement? And why do you think this bill is better than allowing Section 215 to sunset? It's a great question. Um, Thanks to the Internet Caucus for having us. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we think is one of the critical privacy issues that we'll confront in this Congress. So just to answer squarely, we believe that USA Freedom does, does a couple of tremendously important things. The first and most obvious is, is it stops bulk collection, not just under Section 215, but also under the FISA pen trap standard and under for national security letters. 
This is a tremendous advance, one that would be considered on its own to be a, a major victory for privacy and a pro-surveillance reform package. We also have significant new protections and transparency around the FISA court and novel FISA court decisions, as well as the ability to learn through reports exactly how this information is being collected and its scope and volume. Obviously, we do not view this as a comprehensive package. As a matter of fact, we view it as just a first step. But we think an important first step and one that paves a path forward for more surveillance reform in the future. We'll certainly talk more about this going forward, but Section 702 has a similar sunset in a couple of years, in 2017. So we view this as a staged process where we can get reform under 215 now. I hope that we'll be able to get reform under Section 702 down the road. Uh, certainly Chairman Goodlatte committed yesterday to continue to do hearings on that issue and to discuss it. Um, but, but to be clear, we believe that we must have real meaningful reform under Section 215 and under USA Freedom. So if this bill is watered down, if we see a package that does not end bulk collection, we will not support it. We will support a sunset to Section 215. We do not believe that the sky falls to Section 215 sunsets, nor do we believe it is as good as what USA Freedom gives us, but we will not take watered-down reform. And if that's what we see, we would withdraw our support for the bill and support a straight sunset. So I'm sure we'll be able to talk about more of the reform packages as we go forward, but that's CDT's baseline position. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was a great opening. And uh, to you, Jessica. The companies, which include Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, came to an agreement with the Department of Justice in early 2014 to enable them to re report more fully on the surveillance orders they receive. How is USA Freedom better than that agreement? Why is it important, and why is it important to the companies to have more transparency in reporting? So only a couple of the companies within reform government surveillance were a part of the settlement agreements. There are others who weren't, and then obviously a lot of other tech companies that were not. The, what USA Freedom does is it adds two additional categories to how companies can report on as part of their transparency reports. Um, they now can report in bands of zero to 500. Originally, it was zero to 1,000 or zero to 250, and I won't go into the minutia of how that was divided up, but the companies were looking for more granularity as they move forward in, in their reports. Um, so there was a, an additional band of zero to 500 that was very helpful. And then, as that was, was in the House version last year, the Senate version that was discussed late last year and is now, this language actually made it into the bill that was passed yesterday, is actually one that allows companies report in bands of zero to 100, and that's more granularity than was allowed in the settlement agreement. The more granularity part of this is important because it allow the whole reason behind the transparency reports is to tell, to show users, to show consumers what companies are doing. They've done this on the law enforcement side to show what kind of cooperation they have with the government, the limitations on that, and that the concerns that many had that their privacy was being violated, that information was being handed over nilly-willy is not actually happening. So the more granular the numbers, the better it is for companies and to be transparent with their users. So the zero to 100 ban that was added in the latest version of the bill is an important piece of this. Thanks, Jessica. Nima, 
the privacy community is uh, not united behind USA Freedom. While the ACLU does not outright oppose the bill, it says it does not go far enough and that allowing Section 215 to sunset would be preferable. ACLU supported USA Freedom, the Senate version, last year. Why don't you open by explaining your position? Why not support, fully support USA Freedom as it exists this year? Uh, what's, what, why do you think it doesn't go far enough? What's the difference? Um, so I'll talk a little bit about why I think this bill isn't the solution um, that the public has demanded um, and that we think should be the outcome of, of the debate in this Congress. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit about why we think the expiration of 215 is, is the preferable outcome. Um, in terms of this particular bill, um, it simply doesn't go far enough. Um, you know, Chris is right. What we get out of this bill is an end to, you know, nationwide surveillance under um, several of the relevant authorities. Um, we would maybe have um, a ban on the type of concerning collection that people um, have talked about, um, you know, records in an entire state or an entire zip code. Um, but the bill has many ambiguities that would leave the door open to um, very expansive collection um, that affects innocent people. So, for example, you know, several hundred people who might share an IP address. You know, this bill would allow that type of collection, potentially. Um, records for an entire company, um, which could implicate um, numerous people who have no nexus to terrorism whatsoever. Um, and these ambiguities um, are not balanced by any back-end protections, which we've seen in other versions of the bill. Um, so, for example, if we have a situation where the government collects, you know, several hundred records and they only need one, there's nothing in this bill that would require the government, you know, to purge the rest of those records um, in a timely fashion. Um, and given that dynamic, given the fact that this bill um, could be read to potentially authorize, you know, enormous amounts of collection, um, and there aren't sufficient protections, back-end protections, you know, we feel at the end of the day that um, the bill is not as strong as we would like. Um, and coupled with this, there are various pieces of the bill um, with regards to transparency, um, with regards to, to other provisions in FISA um, that are either weak um, or in some cases even a step back from current law. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that we have not been able to, to support the bill, although um, we don't oppose the bill. Um, given where um, the reform efforts are, we believe that the expiration of, of Section 215 is a preferable outcome. You know, when Section 215 was passed, it was never intended to be permanent. Um, it was intended um, that after a couple of years, Congress would sit, look at the provision, look at its effectiveness, look at its impact on privacy and civil liberties, um, and reassess it. Um, and now we've arrived at a point where we see the problems with 215. You know, mass surveillance was one piece of the problem with Section 215. Um, Section 215 was an unprecedented expansion in our intelligence agency's authorities. Um, it gave them access to lots of different records that they didn't have access to before, um, and it dropped the level of cause um, that the government had to show to get those records. Um, and while the mass surveillance piece is one impact of that, there's all kinds of other um, concerning activities that Section 215 should be used for. Um, and given these concerns um, and given the lack of eff efficacy of some of these programs, um, it's time for that provision to sunset and for us to return to um, an infrastructure that is more respective of privacy. Great. Thank you, Nima. Um, and, and that's a real good jumping off point for Bob to give you know, his opening statement. Uh, last year, the administration endorsed the Senate version of the USA Freedom. And this year's bill is similar, yet as Nima pointed out, it's lost some useful and significant privacy protections. 
uh, still its sponsors say they worked with the intelligence community in writing this bill. So do you think, number one, this is a bill you can get behind? Should we expect another letter of support from the DNI for USA Freedom? And two, if you want to also address some of NEMA's concerns, that would be great. Uh, thanks, Ellen, and, and I apologize in advance because I'm, I'm fighting off a bit of a cold. Uh, hopefully I'll be okay. Um, uh, so it is true, we, the administration has worked very closely with um, members of uh, Congress, their staffs, of both parties and both houses to come up with this bill. Um, we haven't, I, and the bill's 120 pages long, we haven't had a chance to go over it in detail yet, but, but certainly uh, at a first reading it looks to be uh, something that accomplishes the goals that we would look for in legislation uh, of this sort, which is to say it does end bulk collection. It does preserve other existing authorities. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, it provides for reform of the FISA court. It provides for additional transparency. And in our judgment, it, it does all this without uh, a significant uh, and, and unacceptable impairment of operational capabilities. It's important to understand that what is at stake in terms of reauthorization is not only the bulk collection. The administration agrees the bulk collection should end, and, and this bill does that. But uh, there are three authorities in all that are expiring on June 1st. Um, Section 215, in addition to its use for bulk collection, is, is used by the FBI in a sort of routine, one-off manner in particularized investigations to get records in exactly the same way that a grand jury subpoena is used in a criminal investigation, except with the additional protection that you don't have in a grand jury subpoena, that we have to go to a court and make a showing that the records are relevant to an investigation. So I know that, uh, that Nima said generically, well, there are all sorts of problems with this. I don't think there are any, anybody's ever shown any problems uh, with this use of 215. That use goes away, and it will greatly limit the FBI's ability to get records in, in counterterrorism and foreign intelligence investigations. A second provision that expires is one that authorizes what are colloquially called roving wiretaps. It's an, an authority that's existed in criminal cases for, for, I think, since the 1980s. And basically what this is is if, you, is if you have somebody who's using multiple communications devices, such as they, they use a cell phone for a little while, then they throw that away and they get another cell phone, we don't have to go back and make a new application to the FISA court every single time the person, <clears throat> the person changes phone, which is a, a time-consuming process that could easily result in the loss of information. Rather, we can get an, a single order that authorizes us to surveil the target. Again, this is not anything that anybody has ever suggested is grossly invasive of, of privacy rights. It's, a, it's an authority that exists on the criminal side. The third authority is what we call lone wolf authority. Um, it amends the definition of an agent of a foreign power under the FISA statute, which is a, an important term uh, because we're, that's how we're allowed to do certain kinds of surveillances of agents of foreign power. And it amends that definition only for non-U.S. persons, that is to say uh, people who are neither citizens or permanent resident aliens. And it allows us to conduct uh, FISA surveillance of a person who's engaged in international terrorism, even if we cannot link that person to a specific group. It's public knowledge that we've never had occasion to use that authority, but frankly we're in an environment now where, uh, as the DNI and others have said, this, this kind of lone wolf is becoming more and more of a threat. So if we don't get something passed, we lose all of those authorities. 
Um, so I'm, uh, I think it's important that those authorities be passed. I think that, as I said, on first read, the new version of the USA Freedom Act um, looks like it accomplishes the, goal, the president's goals and will preserve important intelligence capabilities. Uh, and uh, in terms of will there be a letter or not, we'll see whether there will be a letter or not. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to offer Nima and perhaps Chris the opportunity to respond to uh, Bob's remarks about the um, uh, the loss of an underlying, you know, authority that's the FBI considers very useful in terms of obtaining uh, records it needs um, in, in, in investigations. This is the straight 215 authority. Um, surprisingly, not surprisingly, I, I disagree with Bob. Um, I don't think the sky will fall if Section 215 exists. Um, what we've seen from Section 215, you know, again, we've seen the mass surveillance abuses, but um, we've also, there's also other concerning parts of the provision. Um, you know, as Bob mentioned, um, Section 215 orders don't go in front of a normal court. Um, they go in front of the FISA court, um, and it gives the FBI, you know, significant opportunity to get all kinds of records. Um, and to get lots of records, frankly, from people who don't have um, a strong nexus to terrorism um, or an association with terrorism. Um, there's not the due process um, that you would have in a, in a normal um, court situation. Um, this all happens sort of behind closed doors and where members of Congress um, and the public um, can't really ascertain um, the effect of these orders. Um, and so the notion that the existing um, existing um, FISA provisions um, or a return to, to the infrastructure that existed before Section 215 um, that would have allowed the FBI to get certain finite types of records, uh, number one, and number two, get those records for um, people who had a, a nexus to terrorism or were um, a foreign power, agent of a foreign power, the notion that that return to that previous um, setup would not be sufficient, I think, hasn't been demonstrated. Um, we are seeing less terrorist prosecutions, not more. Um, and I think that that means that it's time to reassess um, this extremely broad provision that, that hasn't demonstrated its intelligence value. Okay. Uh, I think Bob uh, wants to. Oh, oh, uh, right, Chris, go ahead. Well, Bob, I'll just note the, the extreme breadth of Section 215 is always striking. Any tangible thing, any tangible thing that's relevant to an investigation is extraordinarily broad authority. Pre 9 11, we had, you know, travel records essentially. So the jump from pre and post 215 is one that has always troubled us and the lack of transparency about how it would be used. So Nima's, Nima, I think, is right in, to be concerned about 215. I think we all are. Um, we've made it, and it's worth noting that should Section 215 expire in its current constitution, it reverts back to pre-9-11 authorities. It just doesn't go away. Also, there are other authorities, such as the FISA Pentrap standard, that could be used, assuming, obviously, that USA Freedom doesn't pass. So we are not in an all-or-nothing environment, and we are still in an environment, you know, even given all of the, the revelations that Edward Snowden has delivered, where we don't always have a clear view into how these authorities are used. Chris, so what you're saying is even if uh, 215 sunsets, the government would still have the, um, the pre-9-11, 215 authority with which to uh, give, get records, but it would still end bulk collection. 
the it would, it would un bulk collection under section under section two fifteen. There's still the FISA pen trap standard, which is used for telephone metadata, has been or excuse me, has been used to justify the internet metadata collection program. And there's also would be NSL collection as well, which national is, security letter. Sorry, which is why you don't support just a, a sunset. That's correct. Okay. And I think I would agree with that. And there, if it, it just expires, there's going to be some legal ambiguities around whether or not bulk collection will be allowed in certain circumstances. And I think what the USA Freedom Act does is it provides clarity, at least with regards to Section 215, on what can and can't be collected. And it also has limitations in it. So one of the things that we saw come up as part of the Senate bill, and that's now in the House bill, are, is clarity that you cannot go and get an entire domain name. There's restrictions on what you can do in terms of getting, like, Google.com or whatever, site.com, restrictions on what you can get from an Internet provider. And those, those were to address some of the concerns of still allowing loopholes that we had concerns with in the original House bill that came out. That's right. Uh, and so, oh, um, I mean, Nima said uh, if 215 expires, the, the sky won't fall. I agree. The sky won't fall. I don't think that's the appropriate standard. Um, the question is, is this a, a valuable uh, counterintelligence, counterterrorism tool, uh, particularly when balanced against the uh, invasion of privacy that it, that it contemplates? Um, and it is, clearly. Um, it's just not true to say that we could do the same thing under, under, under other authorities if 215 expires. We can't. There are, there are kinds of records we will not be able to get if 215 expires. What are they? Um, I, there are certain things, as you know, Alan, that I can't talk about publicly. Um, but, but it is true that there are records that, that we use this in, in ways that are necessary to get records that we can't get otherwise. Um, the, the concern that this takes place behind closed doors, grand jury subpoenas take place behind closed doors. Um, you, go to, you go to a court, uh, you, you, you issue a grand jury subpoena, you don't go to a court at all to get a grand jury subpoena. You, it's just the prosecutor issues it on her own initiative. Uh, nobody may ever know about that grand jury subpoena if there's never a case. The, the scope of 215 is, is limited to material that could be obtained by a grand jury subpoena. And it's a little difficult to articulate why terrorists should have greater protections than criminals uh, against getting records that relate to their activities. Uh, Bob, you said there are certain records you can't get under 215? I mean, outside of 215? There, there, are certain, there are certain records, that, there are certain ways in which 215 is used now to obtain information that we can't obtain under current law using existing authorities. And why can't you explain that a little more? Um, you know, it, it, when we, once we start talking about specific uses, we get into classified information uh, that I can't talk about. But that does, does that have anything to do with interpretations of, of the law of FISA? Um, I think I've given my answer on that. Okay. We'll get back to this point. It's transparency is important. Um, Chris, I wanted to ask you, uh, the USA Freedom does not explicitly limit the meaning of the word relevant. And that term was, the interpretation of that term was what enabled bulk collection in the first place. Are you concerned that the bill does not expressly limit the meaning of, of relevant? And maybe you can explain also how it ends bulk collection. And We're, so, we are concerned generally about the issue of the, the meaning of the word relevance. We have and are concerned about that interpretation. Obviously, the word relevance is embedded in a wide variety of standards. It's not just the three that we've been talking about in USA Freedom. We haven't yet been able to settle on what we think is a good definition of relevance that actually helps to deal with 
you know, the bulk collection issues we have while creating the flexibility that we appreciate that, that is necessary for law enforcement investigations. So what we've done is taken a slightly different approach. What we've said, or what USA Freedom says, and, and what we hope will become law, is the idea of specific selection terms. So limiting to specific terms exactly what can be searched and creating the idea that we'll only search on the basis of particular, or largely search on the basis of specific names and people. Um, there are some slight expansions of that around the idea of searching devices and some other identifiers. NEMA is 100% correct, and one of the major concerns we had about USA Freedom from the Senate version last year to the version we're considering right now is the idea of what we would call super minimization. So this idea, different than sort of traditional minimization, which allows you to collect information but just not share it, the idea of super minimization is if I'm collecting information on innocent people, I should have to discard that, right? And so colloquially that's sometimes called bulk e-collection. So it's more people than everybody, or it's less people than everybody, but still more than we're comfortable with. That's something that isn't in this bill, and we think it's a significant loss for privacy. We're concerned about it. As we said, we don't think USA Freedom is the be-all, end-all of surveillance reform. All the folks out here who can care about this, and I know you're in the room and I know you're watching on, on the web stream, we have a lot more work to do here. It's, you know, it's under two, it's under 702. It's this idea of super minimization. You know, hopefully the transparency provisions, the FISA court transparency, all of these things will help us do that in a more useful way. But, you know, the idea of figuring out what relevance means, dealing with these bulky collection items, there's, there's work to be done there. Did you want to say something? No, I mean, I think that Chris is absolutely right that there's going to be a lot of work to be done. I mean, whether USA Freedom Act passes um, or whether you have a, a sunset of Section 215, um, what we've seen is a real abuse of this term relevance. Um, you know, in administrative subpoena statutes, that term exists, um, and we now know that some of those statutes have also been used um, to do sort of bulk phone um, metadata collection. Um, and so I do think that we're going to have to sort of um, – to, to reassess and, and get a better understanding of how that term has been abused. Um, and it may be that the courts have to, to put appropriate constraints upon that, or Congress needs to, to revisit all of those authorities um, and really coalesce around um, more sweeping reforms than, than the one that's on the table. Okay. So that's a good uh, setup for the next I think, question I'd like to get into is the issue of uh, transparency in FISA court rulings, a significant provision in the bill uh, requires declassification or unclassified summaries of FISA court, significant FISA court opinions and rulings. I'd like to ask you, Bob, how is that likely to affect the intelligence community in seeking to expand or ex interpret its authorities under FISA? Will it deter what many lawmakers have called overreach under uh, the, these authorities? And then if this provision had been law prior to Snowden's leak, would the government have disclosed the court's interpretation of relevant that enabled bulk collection? I'll stop there. So I'm, I'm going to, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, not necessarily accept the characterization of overreach. Uh, said with in, many lawmakers. In, uh, in, in right. programs uh, that have been repeatedly approved by the courts. Um, I, and I'm, nor am I going to speculate as to what, what would have happened if 
uh, other situations uh, had been different uh, five years ago. Um, I will say that, that entirely independent of this statute, we've committed ourselves uh, and the President has directed that we continue to commit ourselves to declassifying opinions of the FISA Court. Um, I think that the government is going to continue to do what it perceives is both necessarily and lawful uh, to protect the people of this country and other countries. Um, I think that the, the principal change that you may see is that the FISA Court may start writing its opinions differently. Um, and I'm not, I don't presume to speak for the FISA Court, but uh, up until now, they have not written their opinions with an eye towards the fact that they're being declassified. Uh, and one of the principal problems that you have, that we've faced in declassifying these opinions, is the intermingling of classified facts and, and legal analysis that is more easily declassifiable. Um, so it would not surprise me if the FISA Court, um, if, if legislation uh, such as the USA Freedom Act passes, if the FISA Court starts writing its opinions uh, with a, an, an eye towards um, uh, uh, easier declassification, uh, and, and frankly, I welcome the, the uh, idea. I've, I've said, the DNI has said, I believe it to be the case that um, if we had been able to um, reveal the uh, interpretations of, of 215 that we uh, obtained from the court, if we'd been able to reveal them in a sort of um, less uh, misleading um, manner, um, I think they probably would have aroused much less controversy than they did when they, when they were leaked in this fashion. So I think it's a great benefit to us to be able to talk more about that. Great. Uh, do, do you think that provision has the potential to compromise national security? Well, I mean, the, the, the provision allows us to redact classified information and protect national security. And, and, and so, you know, it, it's basically on us to, uh, to uh, ensure that we do protect national security. I, I'm really glad to hear that, you know, you and the DNI said that you thought if the, you had uh, released sort of the, uh, disclosed the interpretation of 215 uh, from the outset, you probably could have avoided a lot of this uh, this controversy. Um, how might you have, do you think, done that? Would you have basically just released the section of the, of the interpretation that that shows, shows what relevant means? Again, I'm not I'm not sure it's profitable to to look back three or four years and and determine what we what we could have done. Um, I, I I wish we had done it. I wish we'd found a way to do it. We didn't. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Nima, USA Freedom has a provision that the DNI may waive the disclosure requirement to protect the national security and must release a public summary of the significant construction of the statute to the extent consistent with national security. In your opinion, does, does that last clause raise any concerns? Does it provide a loophole, do you think, to dev avoid disclosing significant opinions? I mean, to be clear, I mean, the transparency provisions in, in the USA Freedom Act, I, you know, I think are, are an improvement over the status quo. Um, you know, the public and even members of Congress, I think, are very rightfully concerned that um, there are other interpretations of, of statutes that um, that may be concerning, number one, and number two, that they want to be able to monitor um, if there is reform legislation, whether that legislation is implemented faithfully. Um, and so the FISA, what the bill does require, does permit, is the release of either redacted opinions or in cases where that cannot be done, um, summaries of those opinions that must contain certain key elements. Um, but you're right to point out that that language isn't perfect. Um, one of the loopholes is to the extent consistent with national security. 
And, you know, that's a loophole um, that could potentially be exploited. And so it's going to be very incumbent on members of Congress and the public to be vigilant um, to make sure that to the extent that information isn't disclosed, it really is because um, there are some national security implications and that there's the greatest effort possible to release the information that Congress and the public needs to really ascertain, you know, how intelligence programs are operating um, and whether the way they're operating is consistent with the laws and consistent with the way we want those programs to operate. Um, and so it's good to hear, I think, Bob and other um, other members of the administration and the intelligence community really talk about the need for more transparency and um, the need for the public and Congress to, to have more information about what's happening. Okay. The transparency provisions, Jessica, do not allow for reporting of specific numbers of orders in any category of orders. Is, is this a good, so is this a good provision for companies? And while the law, the bill does not expressly allow companies to report when they've received no orders, to report zero, that is, the implication is if you've never received a surveillance order, you are not bound by the gag order. So do you think more companies would be, will be reporting zero? And is I, that significant? I'll answer the second part first. I th actually think the language in USA Freedom is pretty clear that mm -hmm. the implication is that if you are not subject to this provision, you're can report whatever you want. I think that interpretation so including is there, zero. Including zero. Um, that being the case, you know, whether more companies report or not, I'm not sure, but it does get, provide some clarity that may not exist currently for, for some companies looking for that. The greater, we were searching for the greater granular, as much granularity as we could get. Obviously, there are some in concerns that were raised by the intelligence community on you know, whether getting too granular would affect national security. So what we did was we worked to try to find that balance. We would love to have reporting specific numbers, but I think what we have is an improvement over where the settlement was, improvement of from where we were uh, a year and a half ago when there was no guidance in this area. So I think it is an improvement, It's and it continues to be an improvement. Uh, each bill that we've seen in the current bill with the 0 to 100 number, I think, is a very good thing for companies. Would we prefer to pref – would some companies prefer to report specific numbers? Certainly. But this I think this is a, still a good bill. Okay. Can I, can I add one thing on the issue of, of FISA court opinions? There is already a requirement in statute that – we provide to the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees all FISA court opinions, all decisions, orders, or opinions of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court or Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review that include significant construction or interpretations of the provisions of this Act. So it's not as if this has been going on in, in, in complete secrecy from Congress. The authorized oversight committees have gotten these opinions for years. The only distinction being that the requirement is not that they be made public. Correct. Right? Correct. Right. Um, okay. So the and 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 and, and to be clear, that I'm supporting making that public, but but people should not think that these have been completely insulated from every oversight over for, over the years. Okay. Uh, Nima, your your goal is you say it's a sunset. Do you think there are there really the votes for that? And isn't there a concern that a push for a sunset might result in something weaker by holding up the bill, resulting in perhaps a short-term reauthorization, during which time USA Freedom is watered down or is altered to win the support of national security hawks? What in your mind is the path to a better bill? Sure. Um, so in terms of a sunset, I, you know, I think that when, we, when I talk to members of Congress and when we look at the public, you know, there's a lot of members of Congress, and I, I think in, in 
a majority that would um, be very troubled by the idea of a, a straight reauthorization or a reauthorization um, that provided only modest reforms. Um, and so when we ask about sort of what's the path to the to a better bill um, or to a better outcome, you know, one is if if Congress isn't able to coalesce around more meaningful reforms, um, the notion that you could have a sunset or you could have a temporary sunset um, that perhaps spurs a debate, spurs the conversation that um, a, the sunset provision was always intended to cause um, and to reassess and have an opportunity to either improve upon this bill in a way that um, is more protective of, of privacy and civil liberties um, or to revisit 215 in its entirety and to, to let it sunset. So I think that that's really the path. I mean, in terms of how this bill moves forward in the House and how this bill moves forward in the Senate, um, I think that many are rightfully concerned that um, you know, as it moves forward, that we want, we don't want to see a weakening of the provisions. Whether you support the bill or not, I think nobody wants a weakening of the provisions um, in a way that either results in a bill that's so weak or even a bill that's, frankly, a step backward from where we currently are. Chris, Jessica? Um, well, I'll just say that, you know, I, I kind of broke my crystal ball a couple of years ago, and I haven't been able to fix it. So... I'm a little bit of a, a skeptic when it comes to sort of predicting what's going to happen. And so I, I guess from our perspective, we, we look at this not removed from politics because that's impossible, but from a principled point of view and, and primarily. And so the first principled step, step that we took, CDT took, was to say, is this better than the status quo? Is this meaningful reform? And the answer to that was yes. So that helped us be supportive. That being said, we also believe that a sunset of 215 has real benefits for privacy. So both of those are powerful outcomes that while we obviously favor USA freedom, that we do not believe they're exclusive. We see a clear path forward with USA freedom, one that we think is the most straightforward and provides meaningful reform. Again, the first step and hopefully sets a, a standard that we can use when we get to 702. So to us, it was a logical, consistent, and meaningful reform. That's why we supported it. But in terms of, you know, whether the gamesmanship is going to result in a better reform, um, you know, I think we're going to see that play out, but we hope that the end result is something at least as strong as the USA Freedom Act as it is currently constituted. I would just add to that is what we have is a bill where we have many in the IC, we have the intelligence community or intelligence committees, the judiciary committees having come together and agreed on something. That stands for something because in Congress, you're not going to get a black and white approach. Yes, there would be more things we would love to have in the bill. We'd love to address every authority possible, but that's not the reality. The reality is you have a Congress that struggles to get legislation through, and yet here we have a bill which has support on all sides, which the House appears to want to be moving forward. So pragmatically, this is our best attempt at getting some reform. If you don't have that, there are those who would love to have clean reauthorization. There are those who would like to have an expiration. But that's sort of a black and white, and which one prevails? Who knows? But I know in the past, whenever you have national security interests balanced against privacy interests, it's not the privacy interest that wins. So here we have something that improves privacy. It still protects the national security, and it may be the best for path forward on dealing with 215 today. 
Are there other things we still need to deal with in the future? I think yesterday's Judiciary Committee markup showed that there's still issues out there that will have to be addressed, and there will be opportunities to do that. Bob, what if Congress passes a clean reauthorization? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be, in a sense, the best outcome for, for the intelligence community, strictly from a national security point of view? Or, or would the president veto that? And if I, I, oh, I know. Okay. His, his crystal ball is broken. I, I've, <laughs> I've learned over the years it, it's really not a good idea for uh, somebody to talk about what the president's going to do in some hypothetical situation in the future. Uh, people get into trouble for doing that. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I think that from our perspective, um, uh, we supported the USA Freedom uh, Act in its various iterations last year. Um, I think the president has made very clear that he wants the bulk collection to end in a manner that preserves the essential capabilities. Um, and as assuming that there's nothing, no Easter eggs hidden in this bill um, that, that cause problems for us, um, if, if this bill does that, I think we'd probably support it and, and prefer it as an outcome that puts this, puts the relevant authorities on a firm legal footing uh, and enables us to get by that. Mm -hmm. but, Let's say USA Freedom for some reason doesn't pass and you know, clean reauthorization is a long shot, but why couldn't the administration shut down NSA's bulk collection program unilaterally if Congress cannot or will not do it? What exactly would, would you not be able to get? Well, um, again, I, I, I can't get too much into operational detail, but it, it suffices to say that we could not replicate the, the operational uh, capabilities that we need without legislation. You mean the two hops? As I said, um, okay. th there, there are a number of aspects to it um, that we need legislation to accomplish. Um, I, you know, the, uh, hopefully this legislation does that. It, it, it looks to at first glance. Um, and so um, I think that's a preferable outcome. Well, let me ask you this. If Section 215 allows for bulk collection, why doesn't Section 215 allow for a two hop query I think you're mixing apples and oranges here. Um, if, if Section 215 is reauthorized in its current form, mm -hmm. then there are a number of options that would exist. But what we're talking about is an alternative right. without Section 215 in its current form, and it's that for which we'd need legislation to enable us to do what we need to do. I guess I was just asking why, that was sort of an iteration of my other, earlier question, why is legislation needed to, if you... Well, if, if, if <laughs> legislation is needed if what you're get, doing is taking away the current iteration right. of 215. To get, but to get your, and to maintain your two hops. Right. right. Well, to maintain okay. the capabilities that we need. Can, can you tell me, has the NSA program yielded any significant information in the last year to help the intelligence community uncover terrorist plots or activity? So I will answer that question with a one-word answer and not take any follow-ups, and the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> this is why we need transparency. That's right. <laughs> but, but, I'm but, expecting but all, to hear from... In all seriousness, Chris, this is the transparency that you will never get. You, you, you will never be in a position where we're going to say, oh, yes, we obtained information about this terrorist through, through searching this particular telephone number. That, that's just not a realistic expectation. What, what I, again, 
Um, to, to go back to the sky is falling analogy, I'm not going to say that we've that that there there has ever been a situation in which this program, standing by its by itself, has foiled a terrorist plot. That's not the way intelligence and terrorism investigation works. But there have been instances within the last year in which there has been useful information generated as a result of this program. And it just. Certainly, I sh I'm probably not the person who's going to provide transparency and oversight of key intelligence operations. That being said, we've seen some changes in the last two years that I think are beneficial to transparency, such as the standing up of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board that actually do allow precisely that kind of oversight and, and, and for exactly that reason. So uh, only to say that while everything cannot be public, we can have more public, we can have more accountability and more oversight from independent third parties and allow us to, you know, both have transparency in terms of what companies are disclosing, what, you know, getting away from the idea of secret law, having accountable government bodies that are neutral but can provide this kind of oversight. All of this stuff has happened in the last two years because of the debate that Edward Snowden started. So we're in a better place. I think USA Freedom can get us into a better place still. But, you know, all of this happens because we're having public debate, because we're having transparency. And, and so I understand what you're saying about not getting into the absolute operational details, but, again, neither black nor white, but yeah. important protections. And I, and I don't disagree with you about um, the, the, the benefits of greater transparency and the importance of, of, of oversight here. I, I, I think those are both – I mean, look, um, what we do, a large part of what we do has to remain secret. Uh, and because it's secret and because of the nature of it, we have to have oversight, and there has to be some kind of con public confidence that we are being overseen um, because we need that in order to be able to operate. Yeah. So, Chris, the ACLU has a lawsuit pending in a federal appeals court in New York seeking to hold the NSA bulk collection unconstitutional and in violation of the statute. The court, by its questioning, seemed to lean towards declaring the program illegal. If Congress passes USA Freedom, won't that moot the issue and the opportunity to have an appeals court rule on the constitutionality of bulk collection? Well, I'm, I'm obviously going to defer to, to, mm -hmm. to Nima to talk about her lawsuit, except to note the obvious lawyer point that Congress can't override the Constitution. And so if the court's basis is, is constitutional, then no, of course, they can continue to, to find that you know, can find a constitutional violation. Even if the program changes, you will still potentially have passed constitutional violation that can be looked at. But I'm stepping on Nima's Nima? ability to talk about her own lawsuit, so yeah. I'll stop. Um, well, I don't have a crystal ball on that um, question either. Like Chris, um, Chris, mine is broken. crystal balls here. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, it is really hard to predict um, how those arguments will go. Um, my guess is that the government may argue mootness. I, I don't want to, you know, um, it's hard to know, and again, but that would be my guess, and it would be up, the, up to the courts to decide um, whether they can move forward with those lawsuits and um, whether, like Chris mentioned, there are still significant constitutional um, concerns that need to be addressed. Okay. Uh, Jessica, how is this bulk collection program affecting tech companies now with regard to their markets in the U.S. and overseas? Do you think passage of the bill will have any significant impact on that trend? Uh, to say restore trust from customers overseas? Mm -hmm. 
I think that what we saw post Snowden was an economic impact happening to companies in the U.S., especially U.S. companies. There have been a few studies out there that have reported on this. ITIF did a study that predicted that there would be $35 billion worth of impact on U.S. companies in the cloud computing space. Forrester had some numbers that were higher. I know New America did some num studies as well. So the concerns, and I think this is how RGS came together, is what was happening on the global front and the economic impact and how that positions U.S. companies both on the innovative front and also sort of the global uh, development of new technologies and continuing to try to build and better Internet and better technologies. So there is concern. I think this is a good first step. I do not think it's the end of everything on what the companies will do on surveillance. If you look, when they came together, it wasn't around passing the USA Freedom. It wasn't on a specific piece of legislation, and it wasn't U.S.-only focused. U.S. is obviously a leader, so what the U.S. does will impact what happens globally. But there were a set of principles the group put together, including looking at access to data, looking at cross-border data flow, data localization, which is another area where we've seen an economic impact or just an impact impact on the companies where post-noting a number of countries have proposed to create data localization requiring that data be stored within their country with all kinds of limitations. The most onerous right now in front of many companies is what's happening in Russia with the data localization law that goes into, impact, in, into effect in September, I believe it is. Um, transparency issues, accountability issues, those were things that the companies were concerned about on the global front and they'll continue to be concerned about. Nima, USA Freedom allows the government to collect up to two hops worth of call records, right? The records of calls to and from a target's phone number, the records of calls to and from that set of numbers, and the records of calls to and from that second set of numbers. There's no fixed retention period for those records. Instead, it says records that are not considered to be foreign intelligence must be promptly destroyed. Uh, and it leaves the definition of prompt to the court. Are you concerned about that at all? You know, certainly I think the better approach would be to have a, a fixed time period built into the legislation. I mean, when we think about call records and we think about two hops, um, the reality is, is that that reveals, I think, some of the most personal information about people's lives. Um, you know, get information that someone's called um, a gun range a couple of times, you can probably infer that they may be a gun owner. Um, they're calling a, a suicide hotline. Um, you may be able to infer um, a lot of things about their, their personal thoughts and their mental health. Um, and so the notion that, um, one, the government can get these records, um, but that they can keep them and that there's not a, a specific time period enshrined in, in the legislation um, is obviously concerning. And, and I think, you know, we would certainly feel, um, to the extent that the government was was able to do this type of collection, um, having a fixed time period specified um, in the legislation would certainly be preferable than um, language saying prompt, which um, could be um, open to abuse. Chris? I mean, candidly, I'd love to hear Bob's take on promptly. Um, I feel like he might be better positioned than any of us to, to actually answer that question. In it. But, uh, I mean, from our perspective, you know, we have been surprised by the interpretations of words and statutes before. Uh, we've had dwelled on the word relevance and its interpretation a little bit already. Um, so there, there has to be a trust built up that really doesn't exist right now about us all having a common understanding of what we think is happening and what's actually going to happen. My hope is that transparency will help do that. 
Um, but in terms of the actual question of, of you know, how prompt is prompt, um, I don't know if, if Bob has a, has a take. I'd love to hear it. I, I don't have a take on how prompt is prompt. Um, I do think that there's um, perhaps a tendency to overthink some of these issues. It, it's also the case that um, all of our activities are subject to overall guidelines that limit the extent to which we can retain information about United States persons uh, and require us to uh, destroy it after a certain period of time unless it meets certain uh, standards. Um, and, all, and that the the statute um, also requires the FISA court to approve minimization procedures submitted by the FBI um, uh, in connection with the handling of information it gets under Section 215. Okay. And Jessica, I, I wanted to ask you about something you, uh, you raised in talking to me, that you said if the government retains bulk collection, that companies will take it upon themselves to protect the reputations. What, what did you mean by that? that would increase the incentive for companies to adopt encryption technologies, for instance? I think as we look at a lot of the surveillance programs, the companies are trying to take steps to assure users that they are protecting their information, that they are taking whatever steps to be as transparent as possible. I think trans the transparency reports are an important part of that, showing users exactly what is being done with their data, both on the law enforcement side and the national security side. And that's not just a national security side issue. It's a law enforcement issue, too. So if you see transparency reports, they report on both law enforcement requests and national security requests. I think they will continue. It's many of the companies, or I think all the companies in coalition, are working on, on the law enforcement side on getting better reforms for Electronic Communications Privacy Act, for example. So there are other legislative vehicles to look at. And I do think companies are looking at technology solutions, whether it be encryption or other things, to protect and build stronger systems, both in terms of giving users confidence that their information is being protected and also to improve cybersecurity. Okay. Well, I wanted to, uh, we have a little bit of time left for some questions from the audience, so I wanted to open it up now and see whether uh, we had any anyone who wanted to ask a question. If you could also identify yourself um, and then ask your question. Why are you all looking at me? <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I yeah. mean, I'll just say I think that the, the whole perception that the FISA court was a, ru was a rubber stamp was a, was a complete falsehood. Um, and and I, I use that word advisedly. Um, it was not if you and, – and I don't think you hear that that much anymore now that we've released the opinions in which they've, um, for a variety of, of things, wire-brushed us. Um, and, and so I'm not sure that the, the – composition of the court is going to make a difference. They're all good judges. They take their job seriously. They have a, a dedicated and, and capable professional staff. And, and I'll just say, uh, I, I have no opinion on any particular judge. I do think that it changes the dynamic when opinions, at least in redacted form, are public. I just think that you, you're writing outside of a bubble that way as opposed to and thinking about how it looks more generally. So I really do hope that that's a significant reform. Mm -hmm. 
Let me uh, ask, ask you all a question here about a sort of broader question about um, the third-party doctrine of Smith v. Maryland, which was key to the government's and FISA court's legal justification for bulk collection, right? That holds that data given to a third party, like a phone company, does not enjoy a reasonable expectation of privacy and so is not subject to a warrant. But the Supreme Court has recently suggested in decisions on cell phone searches and GPS tracking that a warrant is needed. Do you think the third-party doctrine is still valid? That's a great – I mean, as a Fourth Amendment lawyer, honestly, I hope not. I hope that we're entering a, a new era where we're going to completely reevaluate the third-party doctrine, not to, to nerd out on you too much, but if you just think about what the era that we live in, almost all the significant information about all of us is held by third parties, right? I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of information held by people outside of our homes beside us. So the fourth, for the Fourth Amendment to mean something in the 21st century, it's got to mean, it can't just mean that sharing with third parties means you have no Fourth Amendment protection. I think the court is grappling towards an answer to what the, the lines are going to be, because candidly, we haven't had any jurisprudence on this in almost 40 years. That makes it very difficult to start drawing lines. Jones, the GPS case, is a great start. The, the cell phone search is, has a more great language in it, and my hope is that the court is going to begin to come to answers on that. And, I, and I'm not sure what that will mean in the national security context, but certainly I'm, I'm excited to see the court revisit what is one of the, the biggest holes in the Fourth Amendment right now. Yeah, and I mean, I, the only thing I would add to that, I think it's important to remember that Smith v. Maryland, um, one, is a very old case. Um, I think prior to this, this data explosion we've seen where so much of our information is held by third parties. Um, and two, it was a very narrow case. Um, it involved um, not certainly not nationwide surveillance, certainly not bulk surveillance, but very uh, for a finite period of time, uh, a very limited amount of information. And so, you know, the applicability of that case to, I think, many of the, the scenarios we're confronting today is not as strong. Bob? So, I mean, I think it's inevitable that, that we are going to reconsider Fourth Amendment doctrine uh, in the light of, of, of technological changes. Um, I, I think that's a good idea. I think there probably are limits, but I think we need to, to look at it in a balanced fashion, in particular to take account not only of the ways in which technology um, uh, impacts privacy from a negative perspective, but the ways in, in which technology can be privacy protective as well, um, in which it, there can be sort of enforceable limits put on what the government does through, through the use of technology. I think this is going to be a conversation that, that's going to take place over a period of years. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't doubt that it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there's a question in the back. Again, I'm not going to predict the position that the administration would take on hypothetical provisions that aren't in a bill. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, I think we'll take the bill as it exists now and uh, and see what happens with that. 
Well, Bill, Bob, what were some of the um, the lines that the red lines that the intelligence community had, though, in terms of what they needed to see in a bill? Um, we needed to ensure that we didn't unduly compromise operational capabilities, um, and that the, what that our capabilities are preserved. And was the expansion from 15 to 20 years for um, the penalty for ma uh, material support to terrorism one of your asks? I, I guess I don't want to get into the specifics of, of negotiations. I don't. I don't think that furthers a, okay. a, a candid exchange of views, including with some of the people who may be in this room. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other questions from uh, people in the room, sir, in the back? Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was a prosecutor for a number of years. I served a whole bunch of grand jury subpoenas. Um, those are those are issued in secret. Um, the target may never learn about them. Um, the scope of information that's sought is is similar. Um, and uh, and in as I said, in the 215 context, uh, we have to go to a court and make a showing before we can get this information. In the grand jury subpoena context, I sat in my office and I wrote grand jury subpoenas all day. Do you think he could get essentially all call detail records from a phone company with a grand jury subpoena? Well, there was a lot of vigorous debate about that uh, b before numerous congressional committees, and uh, uh, I think that was a question on which reasonable minds agreed to disagree. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? If I have. Are you referring to the, the amicus provision for uh, in, in the USA Freedom? Yes. Okay. Go ahead, Nima. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, one of the things that people have been concerned about when um, they look at the FISA Accord has really been um, this concern that there's not, um, there's not necessarily a person in the court who's tasked with um, advocating um, specifically in favor of privacy and civil liberties, um, and potentially also to provide technical assistance to the court because, you know, many of the, the issues they're grappling with are, are very complicated and technical in nature. Um, and so there's, there's been various proposals put on the floor, um, put in, in the bills. Um, you know, the proposal that exists in the, in the current USA Freedom Act, um, it creates a, an amicus provision. Um, that person can participate in a proceeding at the discretion of the court, um, the court must report to Congress when um, they appoint that person in a significant case and when they elect not to appoint that person in a uh, case. And um, that person may advocate in, in favor of privacy and civil liberties or um, on any other sort of relevant issues that are before the court. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, a, a modest step forward um, from, from what we've seen and, and potentially could create um, a better dialogue within the FISA courts. Um, it's not perfect, though. You know, again, there's still a lot of discretion for the courts to decide whether or not to appoint somebody. Um, and there's potential wiggle room for that person to, to serve a function other than 
um, an advocate for privacy and civil liberties. And so I, I do think that, you know, again, whether USA Freedom Act passes or whether we have another piece of legislation, um, doing sort of more sweeping um, reform of the, the FISA courts is going to be needed. And I, I would just add that, uh, I, I mean, yes, C CDT believes that that was, that the, the weakening of that provision was a significant loss. Um, obviously, our system relies on, ad, you know, it relies on a process where we, you know, we have sort of a contentious debate. We have two sides and we, we debate the issue. And, and so when you have only one voice being heard, we think that, that you're going to get a less robust and less informed ultimate debate. And, and I think that just illustrates that the privacy community has given, and, and recognizing that it's not united, has given substantially on several issues in service of important privacy reforms. So we believe we are at a place now where this must be the floor. Just to underscore that, we are willing, certainly CDT, as I can speak for no one else, willing to walk away from USA Freedom if it becomes substantially weaker because we have already given so much on issues like this. So we are in an important place where we have a real chance for meaningful reform, but that's going to re require everybody to pass a bill that really does improve privacy and, and do things like end bulk collection. And let me just say, um, I, I just want to echo uh, one aspect of what, of what Chris says. This really has been a good faith um, uh, negotiation and discussion with a lot of good exchanges and views going back a year, uh, a lot of interchange of ideas and a real effort to try to find, it some, uh, find a, a, a spot where nobody loves it, but a lot of people can tolerate it. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, th that's where we were last year. I'm, I'm hopeful that's where we are this year. I, I suspect that uh, we'll probably get an official administration position relatively soon, given, given the timing on it. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I, I think that um, it's important that we take advantage of situations where everybody can come together uh, and, and agree on something. They, they aren't very common these days. Mm -hmm. Great. And Bob, on the good faith point, just to get some, you know, you on the record on this. I know you've been asked before about the, uh, have I answered before? Sunset provision. I think, we, let me get you <laughs> specifically on this. The, uh, clause in the sunset that would, could perhaps be interpreted to enable the continuation of bulk collection on, under an authorized investigation. If, I think, I think the, yeah. I think the White what? House has said that if the 215 is not reauthorized, we will not rely on that savings clause to continue the bulk collection. Okay. That's good. Thank you. Uh, do we have any other questions? Uh, no. I wanted to ask one in-the-weeds question of you, Je uh, Jessica, um, about the uh, transparency provision that says customer, mentions customer selectors targeted. Do you do, do companies interpret this to mean the number of individuals, or could some companies instead count the number of specific selection terms the government uses, which could comprise many individuals? 
I'm not sure I can really answer that from an operational standpoint because obviously companies have different ways that they have their servers configured and legal teams that are just devoted to responding to law enforcement, national security requests, mm-hmm. doing transparency reports. So I can't say that every company does one thing or the other, and I'm not employed by a specific company, So I, and in those weeds, I don't know if I could really answer that effectively. I mean, if you think about it, I'm just... I go back to my law enforcement days when I was a cybercrime prosecutor, and I can talk about it from what I would have seen back then. Is there a chance that you could have one user with five different accounts and you ask for that information? Yeah, we did that all the time. But in this specific situation, I would have to defer to the companies on how they do it. Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, everyone, for coming and to this panel for a very great dialogue and a healthy exchange of views. We're about out of time. Uh, just wanted to thank the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee for sponsoring this. And uh, we'll let's see what happens uh, before June 1st. Thank you. <laughs>